Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this week's podcast, uh, Serious Chat with a Comedian. Well, my guest really needs no introduction, but let me just tell you, is the lead guitarist of one of the most iconic rock bands in the world in the 80s and the 90s, and definitely one of the most amazing rock bands that ever to come out of Australia. Mr. Tim Ferriss, thanks very much for joining us, mate. My pleasure, Joe. You're, thanks for having me. You're, you're one of those guys that... Um, like, I've had guests on and I've got to kind of give them a lot of, you know, three or four lines of what they've done. Mate, there's no, there's no big fancy introduction to you, mate, and that's not because you're not a big fancy guy. <laughs> I'm blushing. <laughs> but, but you've got to answer one question. Who's the comedian? <laughs> yeah. <Me too. laughs> well, mate, look, I don't want to harp on about the history of an excess because I think it's been covered enough, but, but I, want to, I want to start back in the early, early years in particular, one thing that fascinates me, I mean, it's amazing enough that one sibling is a great musician, but here you are with your two younger brothers, Andrew and John, and, and you're all great musicians. How did that come about? I mean, who, who picked up an instrument first? Who influenced who growing up? How, tell us about that, mate. Well, in all honesty, I picked up an instrument first because I was the older of the brothers. Um, but our father sort of... Uh, well, we were always around music, you know. Mum and Dad used to constantly have records playing, uh, stuff like Soul and, um, you know, Sergio Mendez, Brazil 66 and yeah. uh, <laughs> Nanny, all kinds of, Herb Alpert, you know, that sort of yeah. stuff. Um, uh, and, you know, I used to love watching the Monkees television show. I used to run home from school to watch the Monkees. Yeah. Um, but so Dad made sure that we all sort of, were starting to play an instrument by the time we were about eight years old. Oh, that's that's um, great. Hmm. And yeah, and I, I, funnily enough, my first guitar teacher, I have really fond memories of him back in Perth. Uh, yeah, a guy named um, oh, <laughs> such fond memories I forgot his name. Peter Federici or Tony Federici. Right. His wife called him Peter, but his name was Tony. So yeah. I can never really figure that out. Yeah. Um, and he was a lovely old Italian man, and yeah. he just. He wrote music with beautiful fountain pen script and the whole thing, it just, it, and the way I had to sit, it was classical guitar and, and flamenco Spanish, so it was nothing like what I ended up playing. Yeah. Um, but the whole the whole thing was kind of trippy and, and he, he would accompany me on mandolin or a trombone or guitar or bass, bass like some sort of classic bass thing. And it, it struck me straight away as a, as a magical thing when two people played music together yeah. rather than just by yourself. And I always thought I sounded a bit shonky just by myself. <laughs> um, so, and that, yeah. we sort of took that home with, uh, I sort of took that home with my yeah. brothers a bit too. And, you know, when Andrew started playing the piano, mm -hmm. we'd sort of jam a bit here or there. And, yeah. Uh, or my, my mother's brother, our uncle, would come over. He'd play piano. Yeah. Dad would sort of play a bit of drums, and yeah. he taught Johnny how to play the basics on on drums. So we, it was this kind of thing where, and then, but we're all at that age where you know, two years between brothers is like a lot. You know, it was it was a thing where we went off. I, I went off and we we moved from Perth to Sydney. That's where I met Kirk. And uh, he and I started playing guitar together and never looked back. We, you know, we'd still be playing guitar together today if it probably wasn't for my hand. It, 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 were you born in Perth? I, I was born in Perth, yes. Yeah, whereabouts? Yeah. 
Uh, Steve Yacker, yeah. St. Oh, John right. Gods. Yeah, right, yeah, okay. Yeah, the three Ferris brothers were all born there, and uh, when when we sort of got to the stage where we were, we'd become the Ferris brothers in Sydney, yes. I had this idea because mum and dad were moving back to Perth right. that, well, we should all we should all just go and be musicians and live in Perth because Johnny was so little, he couldn't leave home, yeah. and he was our drummer. So, and I thought, well, you know, it's like jumping off a cliff yeah. or jumping into the ocean, you know, you either sink or you swim. Yeah. So I said, look, I'll manage the band. I'll go over a couple of weeks at the head, yeah. organise a bunch of gigs. And uh, I did that and met up with an agent. And we were the Farris Brothers from Sydney, you know, in yeah, Perth. Right. <laughs> and we worked five, six nights a week and rehearsed all day, every day. Wow. And until we felt ready to come back to Sydney and... Yeah. The rest is sort of history. Well, why did you guys go to Sydney in the first place from a young age? Was it your father's work or something? Yeah, my father's work. He was uh, he was the general manager of, a, of an insurance company. And right. He was promoted to uh, national manager. Yeah, right. And, and you've got a sister, right? Is it Alison? Yes, Alison. Yeah, actually, she lives pretty close to me now, which right. is amazing <laughs> after all this time. Was she also musically inclined? No, not even a little bit, really. Wow. Um, no, she's she's just very content bringing up her two her two boys, and yeah. um, and she she loves to sing to music, but uh, she's not really interested in, in playing. Yeah, right. So you you moved to uh, Sydney, you know, um, you with your brothers. Where did you meet Kirk? Because that's how it started, right? So you met Kirk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I met Kirk at Forest High. Right. And about when, after we moved to Sydney, um, yeah, we were in science, I think it was, and I got told to sit next to this guy mm-hmm. um, who had glasses on. He had a drawing of a guitar in his pencil case. Yeah, right. And, um, you know, I'd been, I was a bit of a surfy in, in Perth. Yeah. But when I met Kirk, um, he had the guitar in his pencil case, and I was like, hey, you know, I, 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 I play guitar, you know. He's like, oh, I love it, you know. And he lived at Cottage Point, which which back then yeah. was miles from anywhere because there wasn't even a steel road, no uh, electricity, no town water. Um, they used to, you know, run their house off a generator. Amazing. And they had a restaurant down there at Cottage Point yeah. called the Red Rock Tavern. And... Um, we, so we used to alternate weekends. He'd spend a weekend up living with the Farrises. Yeah. Um, and, and I'd spend a weekend down there uh, in the land of the point. And what year was his brothers? What year are we talking about? What year were we talking about? Uh, that would have been 73. Yeah, from about 73. Yeah, it's a long time, eh? Well, four, I was um, born in 1974, so it's 40, 48 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. So you and Kirk hang out, you, you, you start playing together, he starts playing with your brothers. How did Michael yeah, yeah. and Gary be Oh, no, 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 sorry. Well, I, Kirk and I had this other band. Right. And meanwhile, because the, my brothers were too young to hang out with at that time, you know, it was pretty right. cool. Um, but and so they had their own band. Well, Andrew had his own band with Michael. Right. And Johnny played in another band altogether that just did clubs and they did like covers and 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 they did all kinds of things and at the time Johnny was the only one a lot of us that was getting paid right. uh, and and um we, we were the, the other bands that the rest of us guys were in were we were worked on original material and 
didn't play that many gigs, you know. We yeah. mainly rehearsed and, and wrote music and that sort of thing. There wasn't a lot of, you know, for bands of our age and that sort of thing, there wasn't a lot of work for original bands, especially in Perth. Yeah. Um, everyone wanted covers, you know. And so, I mean, and then I had this operation on my on my arm and I was recuperating back home at my parents' place where Johnny and Andrew still lived with mum and dad. I'd moved out to Whale Beach with Kirk. Yeah. And uh, and the boys were playing, you know, downstairs in the garage and I was sitting up there. The band that Kirk and I had, had broken up. And I was, and it just sort of occurred to me, you know what, what, what the fuck, I should be playing with my brothers, you know? Yeah. And and, uh, and they got this pimply little skinny singer, big guy that maybe, I don't know, he might have potential, you know? Um, he was very shy and really wasn't much of a singer. Um, and Gary was the bass player. And so I just came up with this idea that we form a band and mum and dad were talking about moving back to Perth. And so we rehearsed. And we loved, we enjoyed playing together. Um, the first song we ever played together was "I Shot the Sheriff" uh, for a, for a mate and, and the, Kirk and I, and we, we backed him on the recording. And so we, we sort of thought we sounded pretty good, and we thought it was worth pursuing. And uh, when Mum and Dad told us they were moving back to Perth, that's when I came up with the idea of like, what a lot of us. And Kirk was the last one to commit. Um, and we just left everything. Michael was ready to just leave. He dropped everything, and we all just moved to Perth and went with it. And uh, right, the whole so, so 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 Michael and Kirk moved to Perth as well. Yeah. Wow. And Gary, they all left their jobs, their homes, their parents, you know, and um, everything, and and had trust and faith in me that I made sure that they could eat and. I rented a house and we all lived in it. I mean, we were pretty young, you know. It was, when I look back on it, it's like, I can't believe we did it. We yeah. Did. Well, I, I, I was just about to say the same thing. You know, because yeah. you, you would think that, you know, for, okay, you know, you're moving back because your family are moving back and your brothers, but for three other guys who, how long had you known each other at the time? Well, Kirk and I a long time, but I didn't really know. Actually, the funny thing was, is Gary was in our our year in the same schools, Kirk and I. Right. But I didn't hang out with him because he wasn't very cool. <laughs> <laughs> and he even came. So, um, Can I ask you a question? So, even, <laughs> even at the height of your, of your rock star stardom, was he cool then or was he still not cool? <laughs> well, it was kind of hard to shake that uncool thing, you know. <laughs> um, no, I think he was always cool. Yeah. You know? um, I just didn't realise it. Yeah, right, Okay. You know? You got out of that one good. That's good. That's good. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> he always scored pretty, pretty gorgeous-looking women. All oh, right. <laughs> okay. So he must have been cool. You know? He must have. Yeah, he must have been cool. Mm-hmm. So, so you all move over to Perth, right? Did you eventually move back to 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 Sydney, yeah, or was, was in excess a band from Perth really after that? When you know. Uh, well, well, there were Ferris Brothers from Perth, kind of after that. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine poor mum and dad? They lost all three sons at once. You know, they were like, yeah. As we drove off, you know, um, as we drove off across the Nullarbor on acid back to Sydney you know, <laughs> um, to become the Ferris Brothers, which became in excess. Um, and that was, yeah, that was the beginning of it all. And, and then uh, I met Gary Morris, who was managing Midnight Oil. Yeah putting flyers under car windscreens at the Newport Hotel. Yeah. And there was Gary Morris doing the same thing for Midnight Oil. Yeah. 
And uh, he said, I've heard a bit of you guys, about you guys. And um, he said, how would you like a, a gig opening for, uh, I think it was the Angels at the right. end. It was the Angels at the end. Yeah. And I said, yeah, right, you know, let's, let's. And we got an encore. It was amazing. What, um, what were you playing back then? Were you just doing covers or were you, were you was it a no, mixture we of covers? We were still doing original material, but we were doing covers as well. Yeah. So, because we'd had to in Perth. If yeah. we didn't play covers in Perth, we would have got, would have got kicked out straight away. But, yeah. Um, and that was kind of the problem in the end with Perth was we wanted to play more, more originals. Um, so we were, we were, we were playing a lot of our own material and we were doing things like, um, you know, Hey Lord, don't ask me questions. Um, love is the drug and, you know, um, all kinds of everything from the tubes to, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. We were really... Really mixed bag of fruit. Yeah, well, I was, I was, I was going to ask you who, who were some of your early influences? Uh, probably, for mine, you know, people like Curtis Mayfield. Uh, uh, I, I a lot, had a lot of different influences. You know, Pete Floyd. Um, to, uh, I mean, I, I really, I really loved the funky stuff. So, you know, um, I, but then, you know, we, we would listen to, uh, or Santana, you know, we're, we're a great band. And, um, we're, we're a lot of Australian bands used to, but this is back in the day, Kirk and I used to go and see a lot of Australian bands um, performing on the northern beaches. You know. who, who was big back then when you guys were starting out? Oh, in Australia? Yeah. Yeah, bands like Laddie Does, you know. Um, and then when we started, started as an excess, Skyhooks were, were big. But before that was Sherbert, you know, yep. um, and, uh, you know, Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs and, uh, yeah, it was Chain, you know. Um, when I look back, you know, it was a good, it was a really good music scene in Australia yep. back then. Yeah, right. It really was. And, and then, but it became, like, amazing. Yeah. You know, really, when you look back at the, the when we came back to Sydney, mm -hmm. we, we would work, we would do eight, nine shows a week, you know. It was incredible. Um, what, and, at all the RSLs, pubs? Yeah, yeah, of, and yeah. pubs, RSLs, uh, university shows. Uh, it was, you know, some bands like Mental is anything. Yep. Uh, Minora Oil, Flowers, which, you know, became Ice House. And, um, oh, I could just go on and on and on. Yeah. And, and we'd all see each other in the different places we played because you'd, you'd You'd run into each other in Queensland or Brisbane or in Melbourne, where everyone stayed at Macy's on Turat Road. Yeah. Oh man, some of the nights we had there it was just insane. But you know, the Mental as Anything guys were were really great. Yeah. Guys and friends too. They were really arty and yeah. And we had a lot of time for the Divinals. You know, it's still probably my favourite Australian band of all time. Right. And we toured with Cold Chisel. Yeah, you know that was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you who your favourite band was, so you sort of answered it there. What about your favourite guitar hero? Like when you were growing up, um, who did you well, want to be? Uh, well, growing up was always Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, I mean he just played stuff that like nobody else did. Um, and, but I, I also, also really liked, uh, you know, the early Nile Rodgers stuff that he was doing. Yeah, you know, Diana Ross and. And that sort of thing, and 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 then um, of course, um, the um, well, I mean, my favourite guitar player of all time has to be 
um, what's his face from Pink Floyd, you know, um, uh, Dave Gilmore. Yeah, right. He's just mind blowing, you know. Uh, for me, he's just like, yeah. He's so good. I try to forget his name, and I'm pretty, doing a pretty good job of it. <laughs> <laughs> now, tell me about the process of, of writing songs. So, you guys have now moved back to um, you moved back to, to Sydney. As, yeah, Kirk well, and I are the only ones actually Sorry? in Sydney. Sorry? Kirk and I are the only ones living in Sydney. Yeah, right. Yeah. But Gary lives in LA. Yeah. Um, Andrew lives up in um, the, the northern Tablelands. Yeah. Um, on a huge cattle station up there, Baraba. And uh, my youngest brother, Johnny, he lives up uh, in the hinterland up behind Byron there. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so back then, we. we if you weren't really making that much money, were, were you hanging out a lot in in a in a in an apartment in a house? Because I'm really like, I'm really yeah. like fascinated about the, the the songwriting process back then. You know, how, yeah, well, how does typical okay, success back, process work yeah, in well, terms of writing? To, to start with, we, we were all writing pretty much together. Yeah, and I sharing ideas and and whatnot uh, in a, in a in a room. You know, yeah, and. And rehearsing stuff out and, and writing pretty much together, and then over the years, it because things like after the first album, yeah, you know, I mean, a- Andrews had started becoming kind of the predominant songwriter about the time of the first album, sort of thing, which was really the the best of the Farris brothers, yeah, and then uh, and Michael, of course, had to sing the lyrics, so he would write what he was going to get up there and sing. Mm-hmm. And he had always had an interest in poetry anyway. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it's really interesting, I think, when you listen to our really early stuff, you can hear how Michael's approach to uh, melody uh, progresses and matures over time. It's like it just it morphs into this butterfly, you know. It's quite amazing, really. Mm. Um, but then, so then it, it, it continued to our songwriting techniques would, after working with various producers, it, you know, it started becoming a lot, a lot clearer that, you know, maybe Mike would, would try just like Andrew and Michael going away and writing together and coming back. Yeah. And then we'd all add our pieces to it. Yeah. So we still sort of contributed to the songwriting in a sense that a lot of our parts we'd write, you know. Sometimes Andrew would write different parts for different people as well, but, but often we'd come up with ideas and, co-write stuff as well so yeah um yeah and it's just kind of grew and matured you know right and do you remember the first time you wrote a particular song or what was the first sort of hit that you went wow that is going to be a hit or wow that is just fantastic yeah look um the the one of the the last songs we all wrote together as a band yeah i remember having a, a lot of input into that and that was don't change right um and it's to this day, I think it's apart from Never Tear Us Apart, it's probably our most covered song. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, it's so many people have, have recorded Don't Change. It's incredible. You know, out here, Bruce Springsteen played it. Wow. Uh, yeah, lots of people have played it. It's it's bizarre. Uh, especially Pumpkins did a, yeah. did a, a version of it. You know, I saw my son, like, I, I took him to see Smashing Pumpkins, and, and then and there, I suddenly I'm sitting there. Because I don't know where James has gone, you know. And the next minute, I see him floating across the mosh pit, like this, you know? <laughs> and, and they're playing one of our songs. I'm going, "This is pretty weird." That's surreal. 
That is the real. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so that I have very fond memories and yeah. real connection with writing that. Um, and then then hearing some of the songs that Andrew and Michael got off and, and written, mm-hmm. hearing them for the first time going, that's good, I like that. Yeah. And that's going to be great. Yeah. And uh, there are some real standout songs of, of that. Yeah. And, um, everything from Mediate to um, Need You Tonight to What You Need to Suicide Blonde, yeah. Never Tear Us Apart, you know, I can tell that had leaks. Um, and, you know, Disappear, uh, all hits. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, I, I'm not going to ask you what your favourite song is, but I'm going to ask you this. Well, when when you and I first met, we were in um, a mutual friend's home, and we were in a corner chatting. Someone thought it would be a really funny idea, and I'm sure you've had this before, to go to the jukebox and put an In Excess song on. And they played Need You Tonight, right? Now, you right. didn't even flinch, right? But as soon as that guitar bit, you know, dan, 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 you just started playing. You, it, just, it was just in... Yeah. You just hurt, and you just, but you did, your face didn't move. So if you were at a barbecue and you had to play one in excess song to your friends at a barbie, what would that song be? Oh, by myself or with the band? No, by yourself, if you had to play. Oh, gosh. Um, probably, uh, you know what, what for, for mine, one of my favourite songs to play on the guitar without any backing yep. would probably be Never Tear Us Apart because the guitar part, my guitar, well, I, I play the only guitar in that song. Yeah. So um, so that makes the guitar part pretty important. Yeah. Um, and my part pretty important. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, but I, I wouldn't attempt to sing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I only do that here. Yeah, right. Where no one can see me. <laughs> in the studio. Well, yeah. Well, what about the song that you think represents the band the best? What in excess song uh, represents the band? Well, there you go. Now, see, that's a good question because we had so many kind of sides to the to the thing. You know, like on, on the one hand, I'd have to say "Don't Change" was a really good, but it, but that goes back to 1983. You know, and then but then if you watch the Wembley concert or listen to our records. I only say the Webber concert because it was filmed and recorded. So that's a, as a reference. It, that was just one of, I don't know, how yeah. many hundreds of stadium shows we did. Yeah. But And we'll talk about that. I've got a few that. questions about that. Yeah, that sure. Yeah. But uh, the stairs for mine is a, is a and the, the way it's, you know, that starts with the long introduction and then, um, and here that sound uh, is another great excess song. I, I also think Original Sin, because that's got that funky guitar groove in it that was the shows the Nile Rogers influence. It was a big influence of me, and and I pushed that on the guys to be honest. Um, and then you know the, the, then there's stuff like uh, What You Need and and Need You Tonight. And then then the the other side you've got the the, the sort of the fantastic ballad of, of a song that we constantly ask people who want to use is Never Tear Us Apart. You know it's just a yeah. That's just a, you know, it's just one of the, the greats, I guess. So, you know, yeah. Got to hand it to Andrew and Michael on that one. Yeah. You, you see, you mentioned Nile Rodgers a few times. I think through, with with musicians, you know, people really love him and love working with him. I think to the general public, he's really underrated. A lot yeah, of people don't sure. know 
about Noel Rogers. He's one of those guys that if you're in the business, if you know about songwriting, if you know about produ- producing albums, you'll know Noel Rogers. That's but, right. But he's not really, you know, that well known yeah. in terms of the general public. Tell I know. Me a little bit more about him. Probably because of the era he comes from. Yes. See, now, you know, everybody today associates Mark Lonson with, you know, Miley Cyrus or Bruno Mars or, or whatnot, you know, and now Duran Duran. Yes. Um, which is kind of funny, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, why not if you still can? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but no, so no, I was, he was a producer and he used to play this guitar that's so distinct. I mean, most young people now you'd say Daft Punk and they go, ah, oh, you know, yeah. um, you know, um, and then, and that, that sort of thing. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, but you know what? It's half his luck, you know, in a way for Niall because he's managed to have this career that just when he probably thought it was all over, yeah. to, you know, then when he worked with Madonna and Michael Jackson and then the next thing, you know, but, but look, at, you don't realise it's him, you know. Yeah. That's why, as you say, the younger generation yeah. wouldn't know who the guy was. Yeah. But to work with him in the studio, oh, we just had the best time. Yeah. You know, he's just a fun dude, you know. Yeah. And we really, really got, got along really well. And he's a cool-looking dude too, isn't he? He's yeah, a- he is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he played on stage with us in a few shows. Yeah. He came up and played a, a few shows we did in New York. And, yeah. And he'd just pop up here and there. And there was a lot of, we, we had a lot of musician friends yeah. who just turn up at places, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and it was, it's really nice to have that sort of respect from, from your peers, you know, especially, yeah. you know, in bands that you sort of respected, you know, and, and guys like Tom Jones. And, yeah. Um, you know, and then Ray Charles, you know, and performing with Ray Charles was, was a great honour. Oh, well, I didn't, I didn't know that. Tell us about that. That's the- Yeah, well, he, he sung on a song called Please, You Got That Need, which we recorded when we were living in and recording on the island of Capri yeah. in Italy. And uh, uh, Mark Herpes, the producer, and Michael sort of took the, the song off and went to Los Angeles, and Ray... Sir Ray sung it, and um, and that led to us doing a video with him, and then uh, Letterman. We we did David Letterman quite a, quite a lot. We used to do that show, you know. I don't know how many times we played it, but quite frequently. And so we did Letterman live with Ray Charles, which was you know fully live, and that was great. You know, yes, yeah, quite um, that 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 would be amazing. Good feather in the cap. Yeah, absolutely. Now you mentioned. Um, you know, being, uh, you know, having great peers to work with uh, and also being recognised by your peers. Now, Inexcess was nominated for three Grammys. What was that experience like? Mm. Pretty daunting. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the last one that I, that I recall was yep. we were nominated for Best Band. Yep. And, uh, and I can't remember who the other nominees were except Aerosmith. Right. And they just had that... Um, the thing with Run DMC, yes, um, walk this way, walk this way, yeah, and, uh, which was huge. And we were, but we were riding yeah. high too, you know? yeah. So and and it was funny because at, at the MTV Awards this earlier, I think, or it might have been the year before, we played. That's what it was the year before or something. It was very close to it. We were doing the MTV Awards. Um, you know, I got a bunch of them up there, American ones. The Space Guy, you know, which is. Pretty cool. Um, 
because we this one year we sort of did the big sweep of the MTV Awards in the US, and um, the guys Steve Steve Tyler was coming and hanging out now, uh, trailer man, you know, he'd come and hang out with us, <laughs> and it was really cool. You know, yeah. And he, he was a lovely guy, and um, and so then that the Grammys. Uh, this, this the last one we were nominated for best band. I don't know why, but I was the only one that was able to go. Yeah, right. And um, there was this funny, I should say the name Tyler, but there's this famous Australian designer, clothing designer called Richard Tyler. Right. And still, he made he made suits and clothes for movie stars and rock stars for his whole life in Los Angeles, Hollywood. Right. And he made me this beautiful suit to wear on the red carpet and. I sort of, I got there and, and they're like, uh, you know, it, it, I wasn't with anyone. So they were like, here, yeah, you're with her. And I was like, oh, hi. <laughs> I'm with her, you know. And, and so we, we walk in, you know, and we're sitting together. And my wife's at home going. <laughs> That's what I was about to ask you. Yeah. Were you married then? Yeah, obviously you were. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, you imagine she finds like, out through the red carpet that you've got some other girl. Yeah. You don't even know what he is. I think her name's Dana. I don't know. But how do you um, explain that to your wife? I don't know, love. I was just there. They just gave me this girl. <laughs> I, I swear, I promise. I don't... <laughs> That's yeah, I look, jeez. Uh, we used to have some interesting phone conversations, you know. Yeah. Like I'd be on tour and... We'd be playing Montreux, you know, and hanging out because we toured with Queen. Yeah, yeah. And we did the Montreux Pop Festival. Yeah. And um, we were hanging out with, so we were hanging out a lot with Queen. Yeah. And uh, stories, stories, stories. But we were hanging can, out. Can you tell time. us anything? Can yeah. you tell us anything? Yeah. Oh, well, there was this one night where um, um, but after the, we did the performance um, where Freddie invited us up to his suite at the um, at the. The, the big hotel, the Montreux Grand. Yeah. Montreux is just a stunning place. Yeah. It's still one of my favourite places in the world, and I'd love to go live there, but I'd miss my family here too much. Um, and, uh, and and so there's just there's Michael and me and Johnny, my brother, and our tour manager mm-hmm. um, in Freddie's room, and Freddie had his, his kind of guy, you know, and we were like partying, you know, and Freddie was like, well, we've, I've just finished recording these songs, um, tell me what you think. He had these huge fucking great speakers in, in this suite with a grand piano and stuff, you know, as you do. Um, as you do when you're pretty Mercury. Yeah, yeah, and a microphone, you know, in his hotel room, which is like, okay. Yeah. Um, and and he, he, he had Michael up there and, like, they were both singing to this microphone yeah. uh, to this music I'd never heard before. And and, and then there's Johnny and, and I and our tour manager sort of sitting on the couch going, Wow, yeah. this is pretty awesome. Yeah, <laughs> Freddie and Michael, like, like belting it out yeah. you know, in, in Montreux. Yeah, but I like I remember the next day we had off there and it was really, really beautiful. I'm sitting out there on, on my veranda in front of my room, you know, looking at Lake Geneva, and like, oh, I'll give the wife a call, and I'm like, hey, hun. And I could hear the kids screaming in the background, and, oh, yeah, and she's sure. like, what is it? I'm just making dinner. I'm like, ah. Uh, Nothing. <laughs> I was going to tell you how awesome it is here. <laughs> it's just funny. Like, I suddenly thought it was a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you can be a rock star to the whole world, but when you've got to call your wife and the kids are screaming, that's just yeah. that. That's it, you know. Yeah, then the, the pangs of guilt. Yeah. Um, so, but, uh, you know, I, 2017, I took her there and we stayed in that suite, you know, and... Uh, 
where she just fell in love with it too. And I, yeah. and I was said, look, this is what I was talking about. Yeah. All those years ago. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, was, so anyway, back at the back at the Grammys and and um, well, back, yeah. and and the winner is and they're opening the envelope, Aerosmith. And I was like, I was so relieved. Because otherwise I would have had to get up there. And well firstly you would have had to pretend which I had nothing prepared yeah. for and more spotlight would have been on Dana or whatever her name is. Yeah, yeah. You know? And, and you would have had to pretend to like, Thanks. Yeah. How would you have approached it? I knew I was gonna thank Chris Thomas, the producer, because that man is a legend, you know. He's he's the he's the, the most awesome producer we ever had the privilege of working with. Yeah. Well, you know, I like your story about uh, Michael and and uh, Freddie. And I actually, Opitz. sorry, and my, and my mate Mark Opitz, so I couldn't couldn't yeah. leave him out as well. We were lucky to work with great producers. Yeah, well, I was I was going to ask you about that, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Sure. Um, uh, I was going to one of the questions I had for you was I know you toured with Queen, and you kind of talked about it a little bit, but. You know, Michael was a very charismatic frontman. There was just no doubt that there was something about him. But I, I, I'd probably say that Freddie Mercury was probably one of the best front frontmen in the world, right? Yeah. Do you agree? What, what, what are different. your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, it's really hard to compare anyone to Michael. Probably, I, I always think of Michael a bit more like in the same vein as cross between kind of Jim Morrison and Steve Tyler, the way. Um, yeah. But um, Freddie was Freddie was just Freddie, you know, and he was really different. Yep. Um, and so he sort of, I don't, I'm not quite quite sure how to describe Freddie. Like, really, he's not what I would call your classic rock singer. I mean, Queen Queen went through a period where they couldn't get arrested, as they'd say in the states. Yeah, you know, especially in America, they were just couldn't sell a record. Yep. No, no one was interested. But it was really it wasn't until Wayne's World. Mm-hmm. Um, that they took off again in America, yeah, and, and people gave a shit, you know. Yeah, um, it was mainly Europe and, and the UK. They'll be, yeah. Now you mentioned before that you were recording in Capri. Now you, if I'm if I'm correct, you recorded Full Moon, Dirty Heart in Capri. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. In and it was in the in the the sort of latter part of autumn going into winter because we all went home for Christmas. Uh, we sort of had a Christmas, we had a classic Italian Christmas dinner yeah. um, there, but which was great because it was, it was the weather was cool, if not cold, yeah. and the island was pretty much deserted. Yeah, it would have been, uh, yeah. So we had it all to ourselves and the locals, mm-hmm. and it was just, it was a real, true Italian experience. It was awesome, really awesome. Well, my question is, is where, in your mind, was the best album recording experience out of all the albums that you've done? Oh, uh, well, from from one aspect, Capri was pretty good. Yeah. But really, owning the studio here in Sydney and and going home at night and being able to, like, be normal and then go in to record and kind of like go through because there was no pressure to be to get it done um and recording the recording the first album with mark opitz at rhinoceros studios which we ended up buying yeah um that was an insane experience because mark was the first proper producer we'd ever worked with yeah but then working with chris thomas at rhinoceros uh making kick 
That was a pretty because we rehearsed that record at the Opera House, yeah, uh, Sydney Opera House. It was like we'll just hire the Opera House, and rehearse. yeah. Um, <laughs> like, why not? The best world's best parking spot, I tell you. Um, <laughs> and 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 ballerinas running around. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, and it, it, and and it, this, the whole thing was really really fun and really great memory. Um, so. I have to say, um, I'd have to say recording kit was a, a great, because it just had this vibe of the, like the record. We had a, a break in the middle of it as well. Yeah. Came back and Andrew and Michael had these, the last sort of four or five, six songs and pretty well written and uh, they sounded fantastic and we just couldn't wait to record them and then the album, it just was, <laughs> and then we just worked our butts off yeah. you know, after that. Yeah. It just was... But am I am I right in saying that Kick at first was was actually sort of trashed by the record company? They didn't like it at first. In, in the states, yeah, Atlantic Records, um, as Chris Murphy tells the story anyway, was uh, rejected by Doug Morris, who at the time was the the, the head honcho. Now, I, actually, I went the first time I I went to New York City. I went and saw Prince with Doug Morris, Chris Murphy, and Michael Hutchins, and uh, and Reen Nally, the label manager. And that was in 1983, and man, Prince was just so hot back then. He really was. I mean, he's always been really good. Yeah, yeah. The energy he had then was mind blowing. Yeah. Um, anyway, and that was the most black people I'd ever seen in one spot. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, wow, Radio City Music Hall, which we'd go on to play a few times. And in fact, Noel Rogers got up and played with us there one time. Yeah. But um, so I, I got really sidetracked there, but. No, that's okay. We're having a chat, well, mate. That's what yeah, this is about. But, you know what? The, the, all the albums have have their own special, you know, uh, uh, aspect to recording. Yeah. Really, probably the one I enjoyed the least was the last one, right. because um, it was in Vancouver, and it, Andrew and Michael had take had these new songs that. They'd pretty much written a lot of the parts for, and there wasn't a great deal of um, license for myself to to have a great deal of input on creative, um, creative, create, yeah, yeah, creative input. I, I, so, from my point of view, I didn't enjoy that record as much, mm -hmm. and also, uh, I mean, well, it just wasn't. Fairbairn wasn't the same producer. Chris Thomas and I are great mates, and you know, yeah. we did three records with him. And after working with him, and, and same with Marco, but it's, you know, like, I just, I love working with those guys as producers. Yeah. They, I think they really got the band. Yeah. Well, look, what, you know, we we're going to talk about that, so let's talk about that now. What is it about mm -hmm. these two guys that you love working with? What, what, what do they bring to a record that other people haven't, or that you like in particular? Well, Chris Thomas first saw us, um, uh, well, Marco, but saw us live for ages before he worked with us as well. Yeah. But in Australia. But similarly, Chris Thomas saw us at a show we were doing in Dallas, Texas, with the Pretenders because he, he, he did all the Pretenders records. And, uh, and we were doing this, I can't remember, it was the, something rather boring, I think, in Dallas. And Chris was there. And then he popped up and saw us in a few other places but didn't tell us that he was there and he saw us in Tokyo. Yeah. And, and, and uh, funnily enough, 
there was a, a, a handful of producers going around for the Listen Like These album as suggestions. And Chris Thomas came up as one of them because because all the great records he'd made, the, the Roxy Music, you know, For Your Pleasure was, was my favourite. Chris Thomas is sitting there in the studio with us and he says to everyone in the band, what's your favourite record? What's your favourite record? And, and when it got to me, I said, oh, For Your Pleasure by Roxy Music. And Chris went, oh, really? I produced that. I went, get the fuck out of here. I went home and there was his name, like, Chris Thomas. <laughs> right across the river. Wow. Yeah. You know, with Eno and, yeah. and, and, the, and all the boys. That, and and um, so he'd done, the, he'd done the, the Pretender stuff. So he was uh, good friends with them and, um, and Chrissy Hine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he saw us playing at the, at the show there and, and he really wanted to work with us and he, he thought that our previous work didn't sound as good as we sounded live. So both he and Mark really wanted to try and capture the sound that we had live in the studio. And I think because they'd seen us um, live so often, they really understood what, who we were and, 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 and the potential that we could be on record. And, uh, and so, you know, and particularly from my point of view as a guitar player, as the, you know, they, they understood me and got the best out of me and I, and I just loved them for it. Yeah. When you had to, well, when the record company said that they didn't like Kick, right? Yep. What didn't they like about it, and and what happened after? What was the process of actually getting it done? Well, we were pretty much kept in the dark about it. Like we did, it's not like Chris came and said the record company don't like it. Yeah, where was us? Um, we were we were already touring. We yeah. we started. Chris had this great idea. It was a good idea. Um, we sort of finished the Listen Like Thieves tour yep. um, and record, promoting that record. Um, that was the, 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 the Queen tour of, of Europe and, yep. and, and that sort of thing. So, um, but back, back in the States, we were much bigger. We'd already sort of broken America, but Europe we were still, you know, working on. Um, that's why we were touring the Queen. Mm -hmm. um, so... Um, we went back to the States and Chris sort of thought, well, let's, let's try and get this record promoted on college radio. See, the States is, a lot of people mightn't understand, but the States is very kind of like, the, the, it's pigeonholed or yeah. radio is like, it's very, it's very pointed demographically, you know, yeah. so you've got your college radio, your AOR, you've got your album orientation, well, it pushes out AOR, you got your easiest thing, you got pop, you, mm. it just goes on and on and on. Like, yeah. There's all these different genres of radio, yeah. you know, and they and they just play that, you know. Yeah. Um, and then including college radio, which is like alternative in a yeah. sense, but it's college alternative. Yeah. So he, we were heavily, we were being heavily promoted through college alternative radio, which is kind of the groovy way to go about it. So he had us doing colleges, yeah. which mightn't sound like much, but colleges in in America, they're 20,000 seat arenas. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> much bigger yeah. than yeah. our arenas here. Yeah, yeah. And this is the colleges. You know? yeah, yeah. So we were doing those and, um, and, and meanwhile, Chris was having this argument, I guess, with Doug Morris mm -hmm. or, or at Atlantic. Um, but the, the fact that it started getting traction on radio and so quickly, I think just blew the, his, uh, the, the, his argument out of the water, you know, it just, it just seemed to be going, it just went from strength to strength. And so when we heard that story, we were like, wow, 
what the fuck? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm glad we didn't hear it because I don't know how we would have dealt with it. Yeah. You know? And, and so, so America was great for you a lot sooner than, than the UK was, which is which oh, is yeah. kind of the UK was the last bastion, the, the last place. In fact, the, the probably the first place internationally for us to be famous outside of Australia. Well, actually, we were more famous outside of Australia than we were in Australia, really. Yeah. But um, it was South America, you know, Argentina, right. Brazil, yeah. uh, Peru. Um, so, you know, all those Latin-speaking countries. And then France, I mean, uh, the original sin was a big hit in France yeah. and Italy and Spain. Yeah. Um, but but the UK was always the last, you know, they had this, the old penal college attitude towards us guys, yeah. you know, antiquarians, yeah. this sort of stuff. And, and so that was, the, that was the real thing about, you know, selling out Wembley. And, and selling out three weeks before we even got to the UK. Yeah. You know, we were on we were on tour in Europe when we heard that we'd sold out Wembley Stadium and we we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. that's that's cool, you know. Yeah. So we went in there with all this confidence and that we sold it out. Yeah. Um and 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 you know, the fact that the crowd was so animated and and it was like, well what were you guys waiting for? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. You know, so it was a real like that moment. Yeah. You know? And it, and, that's, and that made it really special. And, and it's ironic that they, they you know, that, that Wembley was probably the biggest concert you did, right? And and and, and it took the UK a, a while. Well, it was, yeah, exactly. Well, um, yes and no. It wasn't it wasn't the biggest concert we did, but it was certainly the biggest concert we did in the UK, right? Because um, we, we were doing festivals and you did Rock in Rio all over. Yeah, we did Rock in Rio three times, three or four times. Rock in Rio yeah, was like three hundred thousand, isn't it? How many people? Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. yeah, Rock and Rio, and, and the audience is there going nuts. And it's particularly for us in Argentina because we've been touring there since we first started touring America. Yeah. So we had we had our first, in fact, we had our first big hit outside Australia in Argentina. You're right. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, you know, that was, that was the other band, and this is interesting, Chris Murphy had this thing because Queen in all the times that they weren't popular anywhere else in the world, were big in South America. So Chris is like, well, you guys are going to tour in South America a lot because this band, Queen, they've been surviving through touring in South, in South America. And you know what? The South American fans never forget. Yeah. They're still all over our, you know, our stuff, our uh, website. Yeah. Uh, all that sort of stuff. It's, it's amazing that we could still go back to Argentina you know, next month and play, and they just turn up and you know sell out arenas and stuff. It'd be amazing. Wow, it's a it's a, it's a great place, isn't it? Where, yeah, where, it really is. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed part one of my discussion with Tim Farris from In Excess. In part two, Tim discusses the infamous Wembley Arena Stadium show, his best ever gigs, including what it was like getting off stage and finding Keith Richard from the Rolling Stones in your dressing room. The discussion then turns to the day Michael Hutchins died in the immediate aftermath finding his replacement, the passing of his long-term manager, Chris Murphy, and where to from here from In Excess and Tim, and his love affair with Italy. Enjoy. Enjoy.